you got your Bibles, open to 1 Peter chapter 3 and 2 Samuel 16. 1 Peter 3, 2 Samuel 16. So here's the deal. If it is your first time at Waterfront Church, I just want to up front say I'm sorry, all right? The passage that we have gotten to today uh, is a really weird set of three verses uh, that, uh, that confounded, have caused all sorts of trouble over the years, but we've been ending four months leading up to this. What we basically have in these verses that we're going to look at today is the bottom moment, the rock bottom moment for David and his family. And so I want to encourage you, go back and listen to the podcast. You can see all the twists and all the turns, uh, but we have finally gotten to one of the darkest moments, if not the darkest moment for David uh, and for his family uh, in the, as, uh, as he has been king in Israel. It's a really, really tough moment, but we don't skip any verses. Uh, we go through it. And so none of you here by accident today want to highly encourage you to take notes on it. Uh, and we're going to talk about specifically uh, hatred and revenge, okay? Uh, in David's story that we've been going through, um, he commits some sins early on that all of a sudden produce uh, what it is that he and his family are going to go through uh, in the passage we're going to read today. And so nobody's here by accident. want to encourage you to take notes on this. Are you ready? Our study today starts with this question. Have you ever wanted to get even before? All right? You ever wanted to get even? Which just for the record, get even is just a nice way to say revenge, right? Again, this idea of you're at a deficit, they're at a, uh, they're at a positive, they're at a credit. And so what do you do? You want to get even, right? You want it just to, it's not that you want to put them beneath you. You just want it to be a level playing field. Here's the problem. Vengeance on any front, anytime we take part in wickedness, we make ourselves an enemy to Almighty God. So I was trying to think of some situations I could talk about in the start out uh, that where, uh, where I, I originally kind of felt like I wanted to get even, and I came up with a simple story, okay? I'm 14 years old, had my first ever girlfriend, all right, back when I was 14, and uh, uh, it did not end well, all right, like many first relationships, Okay. 14 years old, um, we uh, had been dating for two months, going steady, Facebook official, whatever y'all call it these days, right? We've been together for two months, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, I was let know on Valentine's Day, nonetheless, uh, that she didn't want to date me anymore because I was 14. She had found a guy that liked her that was 16. He had a car, and I could not compete with that. And so uh, all that to say, my heart is shattered into a thousand little pieces, right? And just, uh, just going through just the, the, all the different emotions. And here's the thing. For the first time in my life, now I had plotted revenge against my brothers and sisters before, my brother and sister before, but this was a little bit different. In my heart, I just kept thinking, I want her to feel the same way that I feel. What a wicked thing to think, right? And yet, very, very human response to that situation. And so about a year passes, she breaks up with the guy that she had gotten together with, and then um, I remember all of a sudden she calls me again so that we can start talking as friends. Well, whether it was conscious or subconscious, I made the decision that I was going to date her for a few days and then break up with her so she would know how it felt. That's ridiculous, right? And yet in my 15-year-old brain at this point, it was like, you know what? This makes sense, right? This is exactly what I need to do. So she was having an appendectomy, got her appendix out, was at her house. Remember, she had broken up with me on Valentine's Day. She had just had her appendix out, went over, spent time with her. We got together, and then five days later, I broke up with her, all right? To which she then called and was like, what the heck, man? Why did you even go out with me again if you just wanted to break up with me? To which I went, good question, fair question. Caused me to have some introspection even at 15 years old where I went, why did I do that? 
I don't feel any better. I don't feel like there's a level playing field between the two of us. Why would I console myself for a year with thoughts of, I hope she feels the same way that I do? Can I tell you what happened? We both dealt with it. And then in the end, I counted her my very, very first real female friend, apart from my sister or my mom or a relative. We were able to forge ahead, plant the seeds of blessings and righteousness, and the, Lord's for, and the Lord forged something new. I want to read you a passage of scripture, and this is a really good one. If you are a revenge or hate-filled person, you know who you are, and I'm not going to call you out today. But this message is for you. If you don't allow Jesus to deal with it, then you become an enemy of God. Even if something awful has been done to you, if you don't allow Christ to take the wickedness and then start to plant seeds of righteousness, you become an enemy to the Almighty. If you don't believe me, read what Peter has to say. 1 Peter chapter 3. Now let's read verse 8. It says, finally, all of you, underline and highlight all of you, all right? Have you ever done this before? You've come to church and you're like, man, I hope such and such is here because they're the hate-filled person that needs to hear this message, all right? I hope such and such is here because, man, they're bent on revenge and they need to hear this. Peter starts off the passage and goes, and finally, all of you, this wasn't for Steve, this wasn't for Mike, all right? This wasn't for Ashlyn. This was specifically for each of you. This is for every believer in the church. Look at this. Finally, all of you, what? Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil. And here's your DC one, or insult with insult. Man, we're good at that, aren't we? Okay, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Now, here's where the power is, these next three verses. But with blessing. Underline and highlight, but with blessing. Why? Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life, see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Look at this. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now stop right there for just a minute. Whether it's sin you've done or sin done to you, if your response to someone else's sin in your life is for you then to go, oh, they messed me over. In order for me to be whole again, I got to get even. I have to get justice on my terms. Remember, Scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Why? Because we're so close to it, we can't exact justice on our own. There is no real Batman out there, all right? At the end of the day, you have to trust that the Lord will bring about justice in his time. And for you, you cannot let evil continue. There is no situation where the Lord would go, you know what, makes sense. They wronged you, so you turn it right around and you sock them right there on the other side. No, what does he say? When we do that, we become an enemy to God. His face is against us. Don't miss this. The eyes and the ears of the Lord are on the righteous, but his face, he is full on. If you are an agent of wickedness, even if you feel justified in that wickedness, you become an enemy to God. I did not put this in your notes, but if you want to write it, you can. You ready? Pull a weed and plant a seed, okay? Pull a weed and plant a seed. Have you ever pulled a weed before in the garden or in the yard? If you pull the weed and then just leave the ground wide open and don't plant something else in its place or move the grass so that the grass begins to cover that spot, then guess what's going to show up just a few days later? Another weed, 
It's just the way they work. They just show up. It's such a a fast-growing, potent plant that, man, they just grow very, very quickly. Here's the picture. If you're the person that says, you know what? I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I'm not going to repay insult for insult. I'm going to hold my tongue. You still have the possibility of wickedness showing up later because you didn't follow up with the three words we had, with a blessing. The idea is that we allow Jesus to take our baggage, to take the sin that's been done against us, And then what do we do? We then plant the seeds of blessing. We plant the seeds of righteousness so that then good begins to grow in its place. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? A disciple must be more concerned with ending sin than making things even. Let me say that again. A disciple must be more concerned with ending sin than making things even. You don't realize it, but that little quote might save your marriage today. That little quote might save your best friendship. That little quote might save your job today. We can become so infatuated with revenge, with getting even, that all of a sudden it consumes our mind, it consumes our thoughts like a spark consumes a forest. Revenge wastes a whole lot of stinking time. We've got to allow him to break the hold. It begs the big million dollar question today. You ready? What happens when we don't allow Jesus to break sin's hold? What happens when we don't allow Jesus to break sin's hold? Now flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 16, and we will get into a passage I've been dreading preaching to you for two months because it's a weird one, all right? Here at Waterfront, we start at the top, we work our way down, we don't skip verses, but it means that your pastor loses sleep over some of these. This little set of verses. By the way, if you're studying scripture, don't study like this. We call it the point and shoot method, all right? Don't be the one that just spins and goes, I think I'll read this today. What? And you read it and it doesn't make any sense. You know why? Because God's word has been given to us as a letter. It's written to us to be read from start to finish. You ever gotten a love letter before, all right? If you've ever gotten a love letter before, I'm telling you, you sift through it, you read every word, but you want to start at the top and work your way down. Um, You ever gotten a breakup letter before or a breakup text worse than that? All right. If you've ever gotten a breakup letter or breakup text before, a lot of them start out this way as one who has received one myself. All right. If you've ever had those before, it usually starts off with, I just think you're great. I just think you're amazing. I just think you're wonderful. But when you get to the bottom, it goes, but I think we should break up. What if you read the first two lines? I just think you're great. I just think you're wonderful. And you go, you know what? I better set this aside or I'll get the big head with my ego. You know what I mean? Clearly this person is worshiping me and I just need to let it go. No, the whole point was the last line when they say we think we should see other people, right? That's the picture. When it comes to God's word, if we just jump in in the middle and you develop your theology that way, you can end up with a real mess of theology. Start at the top, work your way down. And that's where what we've ended up with, if you're here for the first time, we have four months of work that we've been doing on this story of David and Absalom that has led to this specific moment today, which I truly believe to be the lowest moment in the history of the house of David. What we have, uh, everything started, by the way, it says in Deuteronomy that the king in Israel is not to take multiple wives. David does that anyway. For any of you who were told over the years that David having multiple wives was culturally acceptable, yes, it was culturally acceptable. It was never biblical, never under any circumstances. When Solomon had his multiple wives, culturally acceptable, yes, biblical, Absolutely not. Very specific passage in Deuteronomy that says the king is not to take multiple wives. 
That being said, we then get to David does take multiple wives. It creates a mess in his family, and it all culminates in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when he is on the roof of the palace, when he should be off at battle, looks down and sees Bathsheba, who not only is uh, his friend's wife, but she is the granddaughter of his presidential chief of staff, of his Davidic line kingship chief of staff, a guy named Ahithropel. He sees her from the roof while she's bathing and then does the math in his head because she's ceremonially washing that she won't get pregnant, calls her up to his room, sexually assaults her, sends her back. She sends back that she's pregnant. He then hatches a scheme to have her husband killed. Uh, and then, after that, tries to cover it up. It's a really, really awful story. You can go back and listen to it from, uh, from uh, sermons back in January, all right? That being said, David gets found out. man named Nathan, who's a prophet, shows up. Nathan calls him out on it. David feels conviction. And then Nathan prophesies over him at the end and says, what you've done in secret, the Lord says, you will have done to you in plain sight of all of Israel. Now, just for the record... That's not God saying, I'm going to have this happen to you. I'm planning for this to happen. It was rather God saying, you have set things in motion that are going to end in great humiliation and pain for you and for your family. You fast forward. David's house has got this, again, sexual assault mess that's taken place. All of it's been very, very public. He also took multiple wives when he wasn't supposed to. And then one of his sons falls in love with one of his half-sisters. So Amnon can't have her. David's firstborn can't have Tamar. And so he sexually assaults her. All that had happened publicly with David. And now all of a sudden it's beginning to happen with the rest of his family as well. The sin is passed down to multiple generations. Absalom is Tamar's full-blood brother. Finds out about it. And the rape of his sister drives him crazy. And then he goes, takes Tamar into his own house, and then he hatches a scheme and kills Amnon in cold blood. Causes Absalom to be on the run for about a decade. And then after that, he and David reconcile, but it's really not a very good reconciliation. In fact, Absalom is telling everybody who will listen, it would be better if I were king in Israel and not David. David's wicked. You guys all know my story about my sister being raped. You guys all know my story about me having to take uh, justice into my own hands, revenge into my own hands against half-brother Amnon. And all of a sudden, it causes a split and a divide in the country that leads to the study that we did the last couple of weeks where David actually flees the palace and advocates the throne. That is four months worth in just a few minutes. Are you ready? So now Absalom makes it to the palace and we are about to see Absalom's very, very first executive order that he signs as king in Israel. You ready? Our first few verses, starting with chapter 16, verse 15 through 19. We'll come back to these next week, but it is important to go through them. You ready? It says, meanwhile, David again is on the run. He has left the, the palace. It says, meanwhile, he's taking his family with him. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithropel was with him. Remember, that's Bathsheba's granddad and, and the presidential chief of staff. It says, then Hushai, the archite, David's friend, went to Absalom and said to him, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, he asked him, uh, is this the love you show your friend? Why didn't you go with your other friend, David? 
Hushai said to Absalom, no, 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 the one chosen by the Lord, by, this, by these people, and by all the men of Israel, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Furthermore, uh, for, furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son just as I served your father? So I will serve you. You're about to get this next week, but Hushai is the one that is on David's side, but he has gone back to serve as political advisor uh, in the Absalom regime. We now get Ahithropel. Look at what happens, chapter 16, verse 20. It says, Then Absalom said to Ahithropel, this is Bathsheba's grandfather and the one who is the most revered political voice in all of Israel. Absalom says to Ahithropel, He has just reached the throne room. Give us your advice. What should we do? And by the way, it could very easily say, What should we do first? I mean, right here in this moment, what's the first thing I should do in this new administration? And watch this. This is so wicked. Verse 21, Ahithropel answered, I'll tell you what you should do. Lie with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all of Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. Stop right there for just a minute. If you remember our study previously, David had left 10 concubines in the palace to take care of the palace as a sign that he was not coming back to cause trouble, that he was not coming back uh, to fight against his son. This was a sign that it was going to be okay, and so that the palace was going to belong to Absalom. So all of a sudden, Ahithropel then looks at Absalom and goes, what should you do? I'll tell you what to do. But remember, he's Bathsheba's grandfather. He looks and goes, I'll tell you what your first act should be. You should sleep with your father's 10 wives, the ones that he left here at the palace. Sleep with them. And you know what that's going to do? It's going to strengthen all of Israel. That is meant to read ridiculous. It's not meant to be something that you go, well, that was probably culturally acceptable during that time. Absolutely not. It's meant to read insane. It's meant to read nuts. And in fact, here's what you got to remember. Absalom's entire campaign has been built on, I would do better than David. But right here in this moment, his very first bit of advice that he's been given is that assault of your sister formed and shaped who you are. Now, what's put in front of him is do 10 times what was done to you. Do that to the house of David. If you're taking notes, what happens when we don't allow Jesus to break sin's hold? Number one, we often become what we despise. We often become what we despise. Remember our verse in 1 Peter. It's not enough to pull the weed. You've got to plant the seeds of blessing and righteousness. Otherwise, another weed shows up and just grows in its place. And a lot of times, if you ever pulled a weed before, man, that open patch of fertile soil, once it's clear, man, an even bigger weed will show up to grow in its place. In this circumstance, I guarantee you, the last thing that Absalom ever wanted was to become someone who was a perpetrator of sexual assault. His entire early life was built on fighting against it. And yet, because he didn't deal with it in a godly manner, it bounces around in the echo chamber of his head, and he ends up becoming what he despised. Nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, how can I be 10 times worse than my worst nightmare today? And yet it happens. Why? Because we don't take it and give that baggage to Jesus. We allow it to sit and to fester, 
And then it ends up becoming a defining characteristic of our life if we let it sit for too long. Give it to him. Let him pull the weed. And then plant that seed of righteousness. That's the act of faith saying, Lord, I don't know how good can come from this, but I trust that you are going to bring about something that is good. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready to obsess over wickedness without dealing with it prepares a pit for us to plunge into? To obsess over wickedness without dealing with it prepares a pit for us to plunge into. I've given you guys this example before, but it's a good one. I told you the Count of Monte Cristo is one of my favorite stories, especially on the subject of revenge. Just beautiful movies that have been made about it. Alexander Dumas wrote the story. There's a line, uh, the character, the main character in the movie uh, and in the stories, uh, the main character uh, ends up accused of a crime he didn't commit. Remember, he's put away in the Chateau d'If in, uh, uh, in this famous prison that's for political prisoners. But he's been put away and his voice has been taken away from him. And do you remember? It starts off and he's carving into the wall, God will give me justice. God will give me justice. But as time passes, he just becomes more and more bleak and more and more frustrated. And so it turns from God will give me justice to I will get revenge. That becomes the theme of this man's life. And then all of a sudden... One day he meets up with another character, the one that they call the priest. And the priest begins to try to tell him, you seek this revenge, it's going to destroy you from the inside. The last words that the priest says to this young man seeking revenge with his whole life, I love this line. He says to him, do not commit the crime for which you serve the sentence. I love that line. Do not commit the crime for which you serve the sentence. You see, that is the charge for each one of them been through abuse. When you carry the weight of someone else's sin in your own life, you have to remember, if we don't allow Christ to take it, just like the sins we commit, if we don't allow Christ to take the weight of that abuse that's been done to us, then we run the risk of doing 10 times worse. Absalom is the perfect example of that. Give it to him and allow him to replace it with righteousness. It begs this question, are you becoming what you always wanted to avoid? Or are you drifting toward what you always wanted to avoid? For some of you, I hope that that is a great warning light siren for you today. If you're starting to drifting into becoming that controlling parent, if you're starting to drift into becoming that lazy employee, if you're starting to drift into becoming that bad friend or that spouse that nobody wants to be married to, I want to encourage you, give the baggage to Jesus and then allow him to plant seeds of blessing and righteousness through your life. It gets weirder. Are you ready? Look at 2 Samuel 16, verse 22. It says, so again, he says, sleep with your father's concubines. Do it inside of all Israel. Look at this, verse 22. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. I want you to circle, underline, and highlight on the roof. Which roof was this? It's the roof of the palace, the same roof that David looked down and saw Bathsheba. You don't think this wasn't personal? This is Bathsheba's grandfather. And he looks and goes, <laughs> and I'll tell you where you should do this, inside of all Israel, do it in the same stinking spot where my family was made to feel incredible shame. Look at what happens. On the roof, okay? Now look what it says next, verse, uh, verse 22. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, 
And there he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Disgusting, horrific, traumatizing. You can't tell me that that's not Ahithropel taking a pound of flesh here. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? What happens when we don't allow Jesus to break sin's hold? Number one, we often become what we despise. And then this is for you in D.C. You ready? Number two, it begins to affect your work. Okay, it begins to affect our work. Sometimes when our family life or our spiritual life has fallen apart, what we have the tendency to do in this city, because you have important jobs, you work for big organizations, you big wigs, we have a tendency to go, you know what? Family life and spiritual life are falling apart, but I've got a job to do, right? I've got a title. I've got things I'm doing for this country. I've got things I'm doing. And here's the deal. Part of that, I mean, I'm telling you, the Lord has placed you in that position so that you have a godly voice and a godly influence. But here's the deal. If you don't deal with those family and personal issues, those relationship issues, and those spiritual issues, it will eventually affect your work. It will. And it comes out in strange ways. Like, for example, here, Absalom looks and goes, what's the first mark of my regime? What's the first executive order that we're going to sign? And I'm telling you, Ahithropel is so driven by rage and revenge that he sits there and goes, I'll tell you what you're going to do. I'll tell you what my political advice is for you. I want you to do this weird sexual assault thing, and you're going to do it on the roof where your father belittled my family and belittled, uh, and belittled my granddaughter. I mean, I'm telling you, it is so ridiculous what we're about to find in the next part of the passage, it drives Ahithropel so crazy that after he loses his influence, he ends up taking his own life. He commits suicide. It drives him nuts. If you're taking notes, write this down. Sin likes to begin its work out of sight and then grows seeking a full takeover. Sin likes to begin its work out of sight in the shadows and then it grows seeking a full takeover. If you are the person saying today, I'll deal with family and I'll deal with spiritual life later, but I've got a job to do. God would not have given you a job to do if you couldn't do it in a godly way. It's not one or the other. It has to be both and it has to be you forging that new path and not trading godliness and family for you to be able to do your job. Sometimes what that causes is us to justify really wicked things. It causes us to justify exposing someone else's sin um, by doing something that's even more wicked. It bleeds over into our work environment. I've got a crazy little story I want to tell you, and I don't tell this story very often. In fact, I think I've only told it here once in the history of our church. But uh, back when I worked in Texas, had a situation where... Um, there was a group of staff that got at odds with the pastor that we worked for. I was serving in a support staff position. And uh, they got at odds, and they had called the pastor a liar on something. Well, again, it was kind of a hearsay issue. And honestly, uh, to me, it was, it was not, a, it was not a, a, a this is right, this is wrong issue. It was just, a, again, a kind of a workplace dispute. But the group of staff got so angry about it, we didn't realize this. But uh, one of the staff members started bringing a big, bulky pen to staff meeting. And uh, big, bulky pen, this is back before the age when cell phones do what they do, and uh, brought this big, bulky pen to staff meeting. And so one by one, these staff leave, and we also watched the church budget just plummet and plummet by about 30% through that time, very, very short amount of time. 
Well, sure enough, um, one day, I'm sitting in staff meeting. Only one of that angry group are still on staff with us at this point. And it's me and another guy who's really into tech sitting next to me. And uh, this was really preparing me for D.C., by the way, just the way the city works. Um, but we're sitting, and then all of a sudden, the guy gets up, one of the guys gets up to go to the bathroom, and he leaves this big bulky pen on the table. Well, the guy who's a techie sees it, picks it up, and starts to look at it. And he looks at me, and he goes, does that look like a camera to you on the end of this pen? And I was like, it does. Well, then the guy comes back from the bathroom, sees it, and he's like, hey, don't touch my pen. And we're like, is that a camera? On the end of it, he goes, no, 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 it's an infrared pen. He said, uh, I write out my notes, and then it transcribes them to my, uh, to my computer after I get done, which those do exist, all right? And so we were just like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. Well, then another day, and uh, after that, um, the guy who's the techie calls me, and he goes, can we go to lunch, like a private lunch? And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. And so we met at McDonald's. That was where we met. <laughs> and uh, that's all I could afford. And so... We sit at McDonald's, and I'll never forget, he goes, I found this pen. He goes, online, he flips around like a Google search, and it says HD video pen and all this stuff, and we were just like, no stinking way. Well, sure enough, he had left the pen out on his office desk, and it has a USB port, plug it in, and there were videos that had been created. They had spliced things together. I mean, it was just awful, just awful, and they were showing this to different people in the church. It made me feel real good about myself because I was like, I, I was not in any of the splicings. Nothing I had said was newsworthy, I suppose. <laughs> but if you've ever been a part of that, I felt so betrayed. I felt so insecure. And it was just like somebody did this without telling me. Well, we contacted a lawyer. And what we found out is in the state of Texas, it's considered improper but not illegal to record someone without their knowledge. And so we asked the lawyer, what do we do here? And the lawyer was like, oh, you fire them for sure. Uh, but you can't press charges on this. What he did was not illegal, uh, but what he did was incredibly improper. And so I'll never forget, we go in, leadership team has the meeting. He lied and lied and lied, and then finally he came clean. And it was so interesting because the testimony had become to expose a perceived workplace lie, all of a sudden justified all this other stuff that sought to completely and totally destroy the church. It's so interesting because 1 Peter, where it says again, halt evil and then plant the seeds of blessing. And if not, the face of the Lord will be against you because you have become the agent of evil. I want to encourage you. For some of you, maybe you've gotten so worked up, so angry that you are now justifying doing things that are way worse than anything that has been sinned against you. And it will bleed over into that workplace setting. And you know what happened to that dude? He lost his job. Not only that, but that story follows him around now. It begs the question, is your darkness becoming harder to hide? Is your darkness becoming harder to hide? As a little side note, practical application, in D.C., if someone sits their phone in the middle of the table, you might as well behave godly because you never know what's being recorded, right? And secondly, you also got these people who set the cell phone in the pocket out here with the camera facing out. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but just know you may be recorded in that circumstance. Just be careful uh, with those things that are happening. It also brings up this point, a little side note for you. I would not go vent 
on how you are feeling with anyone except those you trust the most and the dearest to you. Maybe that's a good little advice, a little side note for you. That's not in the sermon, but that's just for you to get to hear today. And if you are to the point where you are so viciously angry and hate-filled that you would tell an almost complete stranger, full vent, what you are frustrated with, you probably are at a point where you need to give it to Jesus. Is that a good word? Moving on. Look at our last verse here. This is one of those verses that could be taken out of context if you don't know exactly what's going on. So look at verse 23. So after this awful thing, it says, verse 23, Now in those days, the advice of Ahithropel, the advice that he gave, was like that of one who inquires of God. Underline like that of one who inquires of God. That is how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithropel's advice. Now stop there for just a minute. If you read that verse by itself, after the two verses that we just read, you go, oh, so was he speaking for God when he tells Absalom to do this awful, wicked thing? In context, and we're going to go through this story next week. In context, after this statement of when he spoke, it was like one who speaks on behalf of God. Guess what chapter 17 of 2 Samuel is about? When Absalom does not take Ahithropel's advice. You know what that means? That means that if you carry that baggage and you are one who has to get even, who has to get revenge, who has to exact your hatred against somebody else so that you are on a level playing field in your head, eventually people will attach that to your character and they will stop listening to you. They will stop allowing you to speak into their life. I've got a friend named Ken Clifford and Ken brought up this week, was talking with this with a group of guys and Ken came up and he goes, man, he goes, in my line of work, works on the hill. He goes, in my line of work, he goes, this one's really heavy. He said, if I start bringing my own personal baggage to those discussions, he said, it's a really tough deal for me. He goes, my boss will stop listening to me and I won't get to speak on certain issues because they know that my advice is tainted or slanted. If you want to take notes, write this down. Our last part, what happens when we don't allow Jesus to break sin's hold? Number one, we often become what we despise. Number two, it will begin to affect your work. And then number three, our sin baggage shades our reputation and our influence. Our sin baggage shades our reputation and our influence. I've shared this story with you before during this study, but it really is a good one. It's like calling your mom and asking for career advice if you live somewhere else, right? Every time I call my mom and I'm like, hey, this is going on, mom's advice is always, you know what, you should move home, right? Every time, okay? The advice is slanted, the advice is shaded, all right, because she wants me to move back home. I mean, to the point that it's like, mom, I got a hangnail today, and she's like, you know what, you should move home. That's it. They can take care of that way better in Texas than here in D.C. I'm telling you, just move home. And here's the thing. Why is her advice shaded? Is it because she wants to go against the will of Almighty God? No, it's because I have her grandkids and she wants to be close to them, all right? That's the reason. But it means that from a career perspective, my mom can give me great advice on a lot of things, but as far as job scenario goes, she has shown that she can't do that one without it being just a little bit shaded, all right? Think about it from this perspective. When it comes to Judas... When Jesus has been anointed for his burial with that bottle of perfume, literally they break the top off the bottle. Every ounce of it is used on him to anoint him for his burial. Some scholars believe that he still could have smelled that sweet uh, scent of perfume from the cross. They poured pure nard across his feet. What that means is it was like the stuff that's used to water down to make the perfume that we use today. I mean, he could have smelled that. It's possible from the cross. There he is drawing strength from that moment, even there as he's crucified 
crucified friends. And do you remember? Judas leans over in that moment and whispers to the disciples trying to assert ascension. He shades it. He shades the, he shades the influence, shows his true character. And he goes, huh, couldn't have that money been spent on the poor and not just wasted on your feet, Jesus? Couldn't it have been done that way? But he can't say it to his face. He's got to whisper it behind his back. And do you remember what John the Apostle says in his uh, telling of that story? He said he did not do this because he cared about the poor, but rather because he was the keeper of the money bag and he used to help himself to what was in it. The picture there is even John looks and says, none of us fell for his junk. When he says that, we all knew right off the bat he wanted more money at his disposal in his slush fund so that he could spend it the way he wanted to spend it. If you're taking notes, write this down. You ready? People eventually figure you out. People eventually figure you out. And if you don't allow God to deal with that sin, specifically the sin that has been placed on you from someone else's mess, the calling for us is not to repay evil with evil, not to pay it forward when it's been done to us, but then with a blessing to plant seeds of righteousness. Because when we do that, God can do something new. That's how we have to remember it. Look at with me, if you will, one last set of verses. Flip open to Matthew chapter 7. I want to read you Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. Great verses here. Here's what Jesus says. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. He says, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Stop right there for just a minute. When we are sinned against, someone else's wickedness, takes hold of us and begins to choke us out like a thorn bush. But if we allow Jesus to pull the weed and then we plant a seed of righteousness, it grows into something that is life-giving and fruit-producing, a, th- a fig or a grape. But if we in our lives allow that weed to grow and to fester, there is only one thing that could be done. It doesn't matter if you planted that seed or not. It's always going to end up in the fire a good word? It begs the final question. Is your baggage or excuse me, is your baggage becoming a defining characteristic? Is your baggage becoming a characteristic? For some of you, um, you've let it fester. You've let it grow. It's already affected your work. And now I'm telling you, it has become a defining characteristic to where people think of your hatred. They think of your anger in association with your name every time it's brought up. Can I tell you some good news today? You can still be free. The same process for someone on the front end of this journey is the same process for someone on the back end of this journey. Give it to Jesus and then decide that you are going to find a way to do good, even in an unthinkable circumstance. One last little thing and we'll call it a day. Don't forget the victims in our story, Bathsheba and Tamar. When you read this through their eyes as well, remember Bathsheba sexually assaulted by the king while she was on the rooftop. Tamar, 
sexually assaulted by her brother, by her half-brother, and then Tamar taken into Absalom's house, it is highly likely that Tamar is in the palace while this is happening. Neither Bathsheba nor Tamar are comforted or honored by this act. In fact, it probably unearthed trauma. From the perspective of the victim, the true victim in this circumstance scratches their head and goes, what the heck are you doing? Tamar had to look at Absalom and go, you think it honors my memory? You think it solidifies your place as the king? You're doing 10 times what David did to our family. What are you doing? Bathsheba to her grandfather. In the same spot, Grandpa, on the roof of the palace for all the world to hear, you're doing this to me 10 times what happened previously. How do you get to that wicked, wicked point? Same way any of us do. You don't allow Jesus to take the sin. When we don't, it festers. We end up a mess, and people we love end up getting humiliated and hurt. Let's let him halt the process today. Thanks for listening. I told you it's a weird one, all right? I promise you we don't skip verses. Going through this, hopefully this passage makes better sense to you with what we've navigated. Let's bow our heads for prayer.